Amen. What a great worship set this morning. My goodness. Let's give the band another hand and give the Lord a hand this morning. What a, man, that was just incredible. And, you know, just so fitting as we continue to walk in this season of Christmas, as we continue to remember all that God has provided for us in Christ. And, and he's been so good to us. And our response to that is worship and praise and glorifying him. Let's pray together and we'll jump in today. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that we can come together as your people, Father, that we can gather and lift high your name. And Lord, our declaration today, Lord, is yes, I will, Lord, lift you high. Lord, yes, I will praise your name, God, because you've been so good to me. Lord, even though I don't deserve it, God, that you save me and that you, God, that you are continuing this work in my life, Father. And we're so grateful, Lord, for your provision, God, and your mercy and your grace and your justice and your Glory, God, that we see all around. Father, we love you. We pray today for our time together, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone that doesn't know you, God, that you would draw them in the power of your spirit, God, that you would convict their heart, and God, that they might uh, surrender their life to you today, Lord. I pray that, uh, God, you might allow your word to bring comfort, Lord, that your word, uh, Lord, would, would resonate in our hearts, Lord, through the power of your spirit, and that you might allow us to walk out of this place, God, with peace in you. God, knowing that we've been changed from the inside out. And Lord, may we go out and proclaim the good news of your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we've been walking through this season and looking at the Christmas story, looking at some scenes of Christmas through the lens of peace. And we've been using that word as an acronym. The first week, uh, we focused on the promised Messiah. We were in Micah chapter number five, and we looked at this God who keeps his promises. Then uh, in the second week, we were in letter E, and we talked about this extraordinary God. And it is this extraordinary God that allows us to have peace, this, our, our great God that is working in the midst of this broken world. And we're going to see today that in the midst of this broken world, that maybe the greatest need that we have is peace. And the greatest peace that we can have is letter A, and that's in the assurance of our salvation, that we know that we have passed from death to life, that we know that we've been born again into the family of God, and that we are walking with Him. Now, one of the blessings that I have uh, as a pastor and uh, as someone that gets called into some different moments along the journey is that there are times where people may find themselves in a very difficult place in life. It might be that they are diagnosed with cancer. It might be that they are walking through a difficult time and close to, uh, to, to meeting the Lord right in, in their uh, outside of his healing touch. And there are times like that where I'm invited in to some sacred, just holy moments as, as people are desiring assurance in their salvation, that they might know that they have been born again, that they might know uh, that they are on their way to heaven, that they have a relationship with God. You know, a couple of times in the last month, I've had the privilege of being in some of those environments. One of those uh, got to be with a gentleman who surrendered his life to Christ and just in conviction and brokenness, just an incredible moment along that journey. And the greatest peace that any of us could have in the midst of this life is a knowledge that we have eternal life, that we've been saved by God's grace. 
The scripture says that it's by grace through faith that we are saved and not of works lest anyone should boast. And so we lean into that. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 and then Colossians chapter 1 and then in 1 John. So if you want to uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke 2, we're going to jump in there at, at first. And we're going to read in this familiar passage. For the sake of time, we're not going to read all of Luke 2. But uh, we read in this familiar passage of Luke that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We see God entering into humanity and there's an announcement of his birth that comes to some unlikely characters that are working the night shift, right? Now, these are people, anybody ever worked the night shift? You know what it's like, right? I've been there, right? It's like you're not picking those guys, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But we, but, but we would not have picked these guys, right? And we see his uh, birth announced to some shepherds, right? Some forgotten shepherds that were out in the field, probably forgotten to uh, this world, but not forgotten by our God. And we see in verse 9 of Luke chapter 2, uh, we see this announcement that happens, right? The scripture says, And the angel and unangel of the Lord sudden, suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Okay, so this is what happens when an angel of the Lord shows up, right? If, if an angel of the Lord shows up, immediately there's going to be fear, right? That's just what's going to happen, right? We don't, we picture angels sometimes as floating around on little clouds with Charmin rolls or something. That's not what it's looking like, right? Anytime that, they, that, uh, that an angel of the Lord shows up, right? This is for real, right? This is a moment of fear. This is a moment that they are very afraid. And the angel always starts out when that happens. They always start out with these words, fear not, right? Or do not be afraid. And that's what we see in verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, verse 11, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, this angel, I believe it's Gabriel. The scripture doesn't say that, but we've seen Gabriel uh, working in the midst of all these moments. Like if it was Franklin, the angel might be named Dwight or something like that. But it's, I believe it was Gabriel uh, here. And, and this, this angel reveals the, the birth of Christ to these shepherds. And, and they reveal, this angel reveals the place of the birth of Christ, right? We see in the city of David, which we know is Bethlehem. And Bethlehem literally stands for the house of bread. And then Jesus in John 6 would, wouldn't it need that he would say, I am the bread of life. And so we see this kind of prophecy as we looked back in Micah chapter 5, we saw that it was prophesied uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. In the first part of chapter 2, we see the world moving, right? Where uh, Caesar Augustus has got the census going on. All these people are moving about because he thinks he is Lord, but he is upon in the hands of a mighty God who is moving the world for this very moment, right? And so we see uh, that this Messiah is born, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, the people then would have been looking for a deliverer, looking for someone to deliver them from the Roman oppression. There was, a, there was a Roman peace that was being experienced in some of these moments, but this Roman peace had come from Rome taking land by force. And so they were uh, excited to see a, a deliverer. They were looking for a deliverer, someone that would deliver them from Rome, but not a baby in a manger. Now, this announcement comes to those who in this time would have been unclean. Now, I can remember one of my first uh, things that took place as I became pastor of this church is I went 
uh, with a group. We had a trip planned, and uh, we went with a group to a Crowder's Ridge kids camp. And uh, some of you in this room were on that trip. I see a couple of guys there that were with me on that trip. And we ended up rooming in a cabin with another church. And, uh, and I want to tell you something. I had a little bunkmate named Noah. Noah was his name. He was, he was above me. And, and I grew to love Noah. But like at the beginning of the week, I mean, I'm just thinking unclean. Right, this kid is like his socks would fall on my head, things would smell. I mean, when, when we think of the word unclean, sometimes we think about like some middle school boys on the trip because they don't ever take a shower, right? But that's not the picture that we have here, right? In the culture of this day, shepherds were looked down on because they were ceremonially unclean. They were unable uh, to, to observe uh, the hand washings. They were unable to keep the Sabbath. They were people that would be looked at as unclean. Writings of years to follow would point to shepherds being on the bottom of the social scale, on the bottom of this, right? The only people lower than a shepherd in writings years to follow would be lepers. And so we would see this kind of person, right? We would see that even the testimony of a shepherd uh, would not be allowed in a court of law. And who does God bring this message to? Who does he deliver this message to? None other than these shepherds, right? To the religious elite. And, and I'll uh, tell you, I don't believe that the religious elite would have heard it. I don't believe they would have believed it, right? Because there's a humility that has to come. There's a bowing down, right? That has to come. And they already thought that they were God. It didn't come to the, to the emperor. It didn't come to those places, but it came to lowly shepherds in the field. And, and the message was this, that Jesus had been born, that the Messiah had been born and, and, and he was born right and placed in a in a in a manger right most likely it was a cave that he was born into there would have been a hewn out rock that would have been his bed and so here we have the messiah being born in that way and he brings this message an angel of the lord gives this message to forgotten shepherds in the fields and and the reality is that this message came to the ordinary not to those who had everything figured out not to the self-righteous not to those who uh, who already thought that they were the Lord. Right? It, this message came right for all people. It came for ordinary people, this message of a Savior. Now we see the angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord comes and delivers this message. And then we see a host of heaven join in celebration to this message. Look at verse 13. Scripture says, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Some of the translations might say peace among those whom his favor rests. Right? We see that kind of language. And so this first Christmas, right, we see the angels announcing the good news that a Savior is born, that we, though, can have peace with God. And this is the part that gets important. So we see that a Savior is born, that we can have peace with God. And in this reconciling work that Jesus is going to do, that God is going to be glorified in the greatest of ways. So what is this, glorif- what is this reconciling work? What does it look like? We've looked the last few weeks at who Jesus was. We saw last week that, that unto us a child was born. We saw his humanity. But we also saw in that same verse that unto us a son was given. And we saw his deity, right? We saw who Jesus is. And the scripture says in Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn to Colossians, we're going to walk through a passage. This passage stirred on my heart uh, on Wednesday. And as I began to to look at this peace that we can have in Christ. What does it mean that now we can have peace with God? Look at Colossians 1 beginning in verse 19. 
Scripture says this, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. So here is Jesus born in all the divine attributes. We've, we've seen God reveal uh, himself in ways in the Scripture, right? The Scripture says in, in, in the times before and many times in many ways, right, God would reveal himself to the prophet. Through the prophets, he would reveal himself to Moses. We saw him reveal himself to Abraham. We saw different things. But here, the full picture of who God is is revealed in Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, this is a permanent residence. This wasn't something that was just given to him uh, at this time. He was uh, Jesus from eternity, right? That he was creator, sustainer. If you were to read the whole first chapter of Colossians, you would see that he was the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, that he was preeminent over all things, that he was creator, sustainer, that all glory would go to him, right? And we see that, that, that his life revealed the Father. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we see that in the characteristics of God and the character of God, but we also see that in the work of Christ. So Jesus lived a sinless life. And in that, we see the character, the holiness, the righteousness of God. So in in the life of Jesus, in his sinless life, we see God's righteousness, right? And we see that because uh, God is holy and we are not, and because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's what the scripture says, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that our righteousness even is as filthy rags in his sight. And because of our sin, the Bible says that we are separated from God. The Bible says that that the wages of sin is death, separation from God, eternal separation from God. So this is the condition that we are in. We are uh, in this, uh, this sinful world that we live in, and Jesus lives a sinless life. It reveals to us the holiness and the righteousness of God. But then we see Jesus's death reveals the love of God. And so don't miss this, right? God's nature is not just one-sided. A lot of times we think about Christmas and we like to focus on the love of God. And we should, right? Because the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave, right? That he was generous, that he gave his only begotten son, right? His one and only son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life, right? And so we see God is love, but God is also just, and God is merciful, and God is righteous. And we see all of these things about God's uh, character. And God is not simply just righteous and demanding, right? He's not just that. He's not just loving and giving, but we see all those things. And God is so righteous. He is so good and he is so righteous and he is so holy that that sacrifice for sin has to be provided. We've seen that throughout the Old Testament. So because of God's righteousness, because of his holiness, a sacrifice for sin has to be provided. But we see in the life and death of Christ that he is so loving and that he is so good that he loved us so much that even though his justice had to be fulfilled and there had to be a sacrifice for sin that God provided the sacrifice himself. And that should do something in our hearts because we see that God had a perfect plan and we have peace in his perfect plan. Look at verse 20. Scripture says this, and, the, and through him, so it was the father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him and it was through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now we think about that word reconcile. Anybody ever had a, a dispute and you had to, uh, maybe somebody repented of something or somebody said they were sorry and maybe there was a dispute that was going on and all of a sudden that relationship then uh, was, was better, right? We might have those kind of things. We have a relationship that has been reconciled. We might 
here of a, a marriage where a husband and wife have reconciled. We might think of those kind of things. And so there's that picture of making something right with another person. Uh, in the, the verb that's used here, it's this picture of change or exchange is what it means. So the, the New Testament uses this um, and speaks to a change of relationship. Now, there was an interesting uh, drive I got to take with my father-in-law a few years back, and we went all through Cowie community, and we went back on Ned Hill and around through some of these different little roads that were back in there, and, and we went by this one house, and my father-in-law began to tell me this story, and it was an interesting story, and so he, he began to tell me, he said, now in this little house right here, and it was just a small little house, he said there were two brothers and a sister that lived in this house, and for seven years, the two brothers They were mad at each other, and they spoke not one word to each other in seven years. Now, I'm thinking, you're living in the same roof. Now, this was before the days of, like, some of your kids are probably like, I could never talk to anybody, right? I'll just text. I'll do something. That's easy, right? But we can see maybe how that could happen. We've got Netflix and Xbox, and we've got all those things that distract us and kind of keep those things. But this this was 50-something years ago, right? And and it's my understanding that after seven years of not speaking, that one of the brothers, now the the sister, she must have been a saint because she would, I mean, how do you deal with that, right? Like like one guy, and I'm sure, like, I don't think you ever stop fighting, like, as, I don't know how old the sibling thing goes, but like, you know, there's, there's going to be some trouble in there, right? And she's trying to balance all this. I was told that she would fix two meals, right? One for one, one for the other, maybe because they didn't like the same food. I don't know. But man, this is crazy, right? But one of the guys fell in the creek getting water. So when I heard that getting water thing, I'm thinking they must not even had water in that house, right? This is unclean, right? So I'm thinking they're, they're walking through all that. One of them is getting water out of the creek and falls in the creek and then ends up getting really, really sick. And in the midst of that, one of the other brothers said, hey, enough is enough. And they reconciled and their relationship was restored. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes we'll see families that have division, families that have situations, and then something drastic will happen. Somebody will get sick, something will happen. And in that drastic moment, there'll be something that changes and a relationship will be restored. When the Bible speaks of reconciliation, it refers to the reconciliation of a right relationship between God and man. And I want you to understand that the only thing that could restore that relationship was the cross of Jesus Christ. And it was God's plan for that, right? We see that we can have peace in his plan because in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but has made his friend, right? This is an incredible picture of the grace and mercy of God. And so we have peace in the plan of God. Not only do we have peace in the plan of God, we have peace in our position in Christ. Look at verse 21. And 22, the scripture says this, and, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So, so he writes to the church at Colossae and he writes and he could say this to every one of us. He said to every believer, he could say this to, he says, you used to be like this. You used to be, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. You formerly, this is who you were before Christ, sinners by nature and by choice separated, alienated, enemies, deserving the wrath of God. See, that's what the scripture teaches, that we deserve the wrath of God. And what we see in the reconciliation that takes place on the cross is that we are saved from God by God. That's a heavy thing to, I mean, that'll just make your head go, like, like we're, 
saved from God by God. The scripture says, but now, verse 22, so he says, this is who you were, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, this is good news, right? So the, the God of heaven takes on flesh, dwells among us, lives a sinless life, dies on a cruel cross, and, and in his death, he has reconciled those who believe in him, those who have pl- will place their faith and trust in him in order to present them holy and blameless before God, holy and blameless above reproach, beyond reproach. And the result of that is the last song that we sung, right? Yes, I will. God, in light of all you have done, I will worship and I will praise and I will live my life with abandonment from the glory, for the glory of his name. And the greatest peace that we could ever have is this peace knowing that we are reconciled, knowing that we are born again, knowing that we are saved. That, that is the greatest peace that we can have. When we look to see what, what in the world can we have peace in the midst of this broken world? Can we have peace in the midst of sickness? Can we have uh, peace in the midst of moments where we're facing death? Only in Christ can we have that kind of peace. Only through knowing that we have a right relationship with God, that our relationship with God has been restored through the cross can we have that kind of peace. So the question is, how can we know that, that we have been reconciled? How can we know that we have been saved? And the scripture points that we can know those things, right? The, the book of 1 John, which we're going to land in here in a few minutes, says that he wrote those things that we might know that we have eternal life. So we're going to look at those things. So what is it that a person has to do in order to be saved? Or what is it that God has done uh, that has made a way for us to be born again? And, and our response to that, scripture says that it's by faith that we are saved, that it's by grace, God's gift, right? We, we see grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. We see God's grace and his mercy. And it, scripture says that it's by faith that we are, that by grace that we are saved through faith, right? That it's not of works lest anyone should boast. But our response to the work of, of God and to the understanding of the gospel, right? To the recognition of his holiness and our unrighteousness is repentance and surrender. That's what we see in the scripture. Repentance and surrender. I'll make a statement this morning that repentance and surrender are required to be saved, and so when we read Jesus' earthly ministry again, he said, unless you repent, uh, you shall all likewise perish, right? We see this kind of message that is given. And so we see in the scriptures that when we respond in faith, that we respond in repentance and surrender. That's what it looks like. We respond in that way. And so repentance and surrender, they're required to be saved. And what we're going to see in the scripture is that they're also required because we are saved. We're going to see that, that a life of following Jesus begins in repentance and surrender uh, to, the, to the good news of the gospel. The understanding of our, uh, our brokenness and our need for a Savior, right? We respond in repentance and surrender, and then we live a life following Jesus, right? We can't turn to Jesus without turning from sin. Now, there's people that will say different things, and we live in a cultural Christianity world where a lot of times salvation has been described in all kinds of different ways, But salvation is not a fire insurance prayer. Salvation is Jesus becoming Lord and Savior 
of my life. That's what salvation is. Salvation is Jesus becoming Lord and Savior of my life. And we turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we're perfect, right? This doesn't mean that we never mess up, right? But at the moment of salvation, I understand, God, you are right and I'm wrong. You are holy and I am sinful. And, and in light of that, I, I confess my sin. I turn and embrace the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation, right? I embrace Jesus. And so the question this morning is, have you repented of your sin and received Jesus as Lord? In the very first sermon that we see in the New Testament, we see Peter preaching in Acts 2, 38. And we see uh, he has, has preached this message. In verse 37, we see that the people that had heard this message, that they were pierced at the heart, that they were convicted of their sin, that they were pierced. And they asked him, what should we do? What is it that we should do? And in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right, we see this picture of repentance and turning to Christ, believing in Jesus. And, and we see that we surrender to him as Lord. Now, when we follow Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Surrender takes me off the throne. It's a, it's a, a surrender to Christ as Lord. We said last week that we don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. We surrender to him as Lord. Now, how many of you... Uh, I've watched some young kids play basketball. Right? I, I enjoy that a good bit. And, you know, sometimes now, now my son, he's growing up now where they kind of get the rules and they do all that kind of stuff. But I love watching some five and six year olds play basketball. Anybody ever watch some young kids play basketball? Oh, it's the best thing in the world right now. Now, I love it, right? Because it, it doesn't matter to them. Do you know, you know, on the basketball court, what are those things? You know, they got the lines all around. You got the, all the pieces that are there and you know, I, I see, uh, you know, just the, the, the gifted people that we have in this room that play basketball, so many of you here, and just incredible to see that, all those lines, all those things. You know what they mean to a five and six-year-old? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And in those moments, you see referees like Ed Ruiz in the back, and, and you get to watch those kind of moments because these five- and six-year-olds are playing their heart out, right? But they could care less about those boundaries. And so the referees are going everywhere with them, right? And they're, as they go to the edge, they're like, no, 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 no. you got to get back in here. You can't go out right there. No, 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 that's not your goal. You need to be going the other way. No, 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 you're going this way, right? I, when I played basketball at that age, I scored one goal in the whole time. I weighed the same thing I did now, and I scored it for the other team. I'm still proud of that moment. Like, I'm so proud of that moment. They lowered, I, I mean, that's just how it was, right? That was the age that I was in. And, and the referees are kind of, they're doing that kind of thing. And, and here's what we see in Acts 2.38. It says that we repent and, and we, we surrender our lives to Christ. And what we see is we repent and we're baptized. We're, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then begins to work like that referee, right? As we walk, as we get near the boundaries and we go to those places, we're convicted. And the Holy Spirit begins to shape and work in our lives, right? And, and, and the Holy Spirit's like blowing the whistle, right? Hey, come back, come back, go this way, go that way. We see this picture, right? Jesus said, it's better that I go away because I'll send a comforter. So we see this picture of that. Now, verse 23 gets a little bit um, different as we continue to go on. So we see this picture. We see in verse 20, um, 22, we see these words. Now, he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. 
Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Okay, so we hear this word and it appears, it's easy to see at first, this is saying, Paul's saying, hey, we've been reconciled through the work of the cross in order to present you before the Father, holy and blameless, if you keep the faith firmly established and steadfast. Now, when I was growing up, my dad would tell me things like, if you eat your spinach, one, he told me a lie, like I'd get big muscles like Popeye. But then he'd say that if I eat my spinach, that then I could have what? Dessert, right? That's the way some of us parents might do might say, hey, you have to eat this stuff before you can get that. And so we have that kind of implication. You, can, you could read that in that way. But an if phrase can also be used to, to demonstrate something, uh, the genuineness of something, genuineness of something. So if I were to tell you, hey, uh, I am a, uh, a pianist, right? And you guys just didn't know it. And so if I ease over here and I play this incredible song, right, then I'm a real pianist, right? But playing the music doesn't make me a real pianist. That's not the thing, right? Being a true pianist is evidence because I can play the music. And so when we read this, Paul is using this if phrase in a way that says, hey, you know what? If the Colossian church perseveres in their faith, in their hope, it's going to prove that they are truly members of the body of Christ. And so here's this truth. The greatest peace that we can have is knowing that we are saved. And the scripture tells us that we can know that. The scripture says that God desires for us to know that. If you turn to 1 John we're going to go quickly uh, through some verses in, in chapter 5, and we'll bounce back and forth a little bit. But in chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, the scripture says this, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And then he says this, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So how do we know? Is it because we prayed a sinner's prayer at some point in our life? Is that how we know that we have eternal life? I've heard people refer to that. Barna did a study a few years back, and in that study of Barna, they said that 50% of Americans had prayed a sinner's prayer. But half of those don't go to church regularly or have a Christian lifestyle, right? They live a worldly lifestyle. So is that evidence of our salvation that we repeated a prayer at some point. Is that what we stand on? Is that what the scripture would point us to? Jerry Vine says this about a prayer. He said, the prayer doesn't save anybody. Praying a prayer is not what saves people. It's Jesus who saves people. Now, I like the way Vine's put this. He said, but you see, God uses means to help us poor sinners uh, out. He says, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so there's nothing wrong with praying a prayer of repentance, but it is the condition of our heart that is important in the midst of this. This is what needs to be clearly understood. And the truth is that only God knows the heart. C.S. Lewis, speaking of the judgment day, said that there's going to be uh, a time, he said, where we shall then for the first time see everyone as he really was. There will be surprises. So I'm convinced that there's going to be a time where we 
where we look around and, and we're gonna, there's going to be some people that we expected to be there that are not. And there's going to be some people we didn't think would make it that are there. I, mean, I just believe that that is, is a truth that we're going to see. But here's what we see in the scripture. Salvation is in Christ. And when we look at 1 John chapter number 5, verse 13, he says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, I want you to understand something. What he says there is present tense. He didn't say, I, I write these things to you, you who have believed. I want you to notice that. I think that's interesting. He said, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so when we talk about the assurance that we have in our salvation, the assurance that we have in Christ, peace comes from our present posture before Christ, not uh, from simply a moment that we remember in our past. Now, I want you to understand that I believe salvation, uh, the scripture teaches that we are born again in a moment, right? That there's a time when we surrender our life to Christ, when we respond to the good news of the gospel, and we are born again, right? We, we understand that, right? And, and I'm, I'm married. My anniversary, 24 years, it was last Monday. I'm married. I didn't get up this morning and go look on a marriage certificate somewhere. I didn't go digging that thing out to go, you know, am I married today? Am I still married? I, I mean... Let me make sure I signed that right. You know what? Let me make sure that that person that I got to sign that, maybe I hope they put the date on the right place and I hope they wrote all those things down right because no, the way that I know that I'm married is because I woke up beside that beautiful lady this morning, right? After snuggling all night, right? That's, that's how I know I'm married, right? It's not, it's because I have a relationship with her. That's how I know I'm married. You want to know how you have peace with God and your salvation? It's because you have an ongoing relationship with Jesus, right? It's an ongoing, a genuine relationship with Jesus. First John 2, 29 would point to the change that happens in Christ, that, that we would see that, that we walk in righteousness, right? That First John 4 would say one of the ways, the evidences that we can see that we've been born again is because we love one another, right? That, that's what the Bible says, that, that the love that we have for one another. First John 4, 1 John 3, 9 would say, hey, you know what? Nobody that practices sin, this is interesting. He said, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. Okay, so he says that his seed abides in him. You've got the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, the God of heaven, the God that spoke this world into existence, has taken up residence inside my soul. Man, what a crazy thing to think about that, that God is with me, Emmanuel. And here's this picture that, that his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, the word for sin is in a, a, a neat tense here. It's a present active infinitive tense. And what that means is it describes a continuous action. John John's not saying that whoever sins and messes up loses his salvation. He's not saying that, that whoever sins once is not born of God. Whoever sins, because here's the real, it would disqualify every one of us. It would surely disqualify me. But what John is saying is whoever keeps on willfully sinning and, and just turning their back against God, whoever keeps on willfully walking that direction with this disregard and ongoing uh, rebellion cannot have assurance of salvation. That, that's what the Bible says, right? First John 5, 4 says, whatever is born of God, I love this verse, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so there's an overcoming that has to take place. Th that verse reminds me that this is not going to always be an easy walk. That we're going to walk and we're going to face temptation. And we're going to go through all those kind of things. But what I want to tell you is what the scripture says is that we have an overcoming savior. That we have a God who has overcome this world. Philippians 1.6 says this, for I am confident of this very thing. Boy, this is good news for those who follow Jesus Christ. This is... 
man, this is the best news. As I was thinking about it this morning, man, it, it just stirred my heart as we were singing, Hope Has a Name. And tears began to just roll down my face because here's the truth. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When I look at my life and I was thinking about all the blessings that God has given me, the blessing that I have of pastoring this amazing body of believers, the blessing that I have sitting behind me and my wife and my son and my daughter and all the gifts that I have and the blessing that I have for my parents to be sitting in the room, the blessing that I have and all those things, they're all undeserved. The blessing that God has given me and I look at the people that throughout my life that God has sovereignly brought in my journey, that he has brought along the way, those who would love me in the midst of my brokenness, those that would share the good news of the gospel, those that after I was following Jesus would see me going down the wrong road and would believe Galatians 6 when it says those who are spiritual, those who have the spirit of God in them, when you see a brother who is overtaken in a sin, when you see a brother who is overtaken in a fault, restore such as one in the spirit of meekness, right? That there would be people that God would put in my path, that he would work in my life in such a way that he was committed to changing me. He was committed. God is committed to conforming me to the image of his son. And I'm not there yet. But I thank God that he's still working on me. I thank God that as I look out as a body of believers, that we have a God who has overcome. We have a God who is working in the midst of that. God is committed to changing us. And what a blessing that is, right? Read this in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 30. I believe the scriptures teach that if we're truly saved, that we're eternally secure in Christ. Look at this. It says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. I want you to understand in the grammatical construction of this, it's a very emphatic way. It is a way of saying literally like this. It would say they shall not, I repeat, shall not ever perish in the slightest. That's what the Greek does to this. And he says, they will never, no, ever, not ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. There's a place in in 1 John chapter 2 where it says they went out from us. They were never of us. When we look in, in Matthew chapter 7, he says there's going to be a people that will stand before him. And he says many will come to me in that day and, and will say, did we not do all these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We see this kind of terminology in the scriptures, right? We see in the scriptures in, in Romans chapter 8, we see the work of God taking place. And we see this picture that if God saves you, you will always be saved. We see in John 10. But I want to tell you something. We also see scriptures that are strong strong warnings against apostasy. We see scriptures in Hebrews 6. We see in Hebrews 3, these passages that say those who endure to the end will be saved. We see those kind of tensions that we find in the midst of this, these strong warnings. But what I want to tell you when I look at the overarching pieces of scripture, and I look at the arching, the work of God in our life, saving faith endures. When we have peace with God, when we've repented of our sin and we've surrendered to God and only God knows the heart. Now, somebody asked me as I was walking in today, they said, hey, what do you think about once saved, always saved? And I don't really like that terminology. If you want to know uh, the truth about it, I really feel like sometimes that's done more damage than good because what we've had is we've had churches where the gospel's not been preached and it's just the reality where people have said this and where pastors have stood up and said, hey, if you want to go to heaven, just repeat this prayer. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, you can get a group of kids together for VBS, and I can have every one of them saved. Uh, quote, unquote, right? Now, because we can say, hey, you know what? If you want to go to heaven, then repeat this prayer after me. Or, or if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. How many people? Let me just try that. You want to go to heaven, raise your hand. I'm not getting a busload right now. Like, it ain't the rapture. Y'all raise your hand. 
okay, if you believe in Jesus, raise your hand, right? And, and then I can say, okay, if, if you do those two things, then repeat this prayer after me. And then we look at them and we say, you know what? Everything's okay. And then they live uh, like the devil, right? They live their life. There's no change in their life. Second Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, that old things have passed away and all things have become new. I want you to understand something. We're given a new heart. We're given a new nature. That's what happens in salvation. And, and if the God of heaven takes up residence inside of us, we will be changed, right? And so the question becomes, Right? Not once saved, always saved. Did you repeat a prayer when you were this age? Or did you do this or do that? And, and understand me, as I said earlier, there's nothing wrong with praying a prayer. And God has given us that gift, right? Whoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the question is not once saved, always saved. The question is, have you ever been saved to begin with? Has there ever been a time in your life that you've responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And have you been born again in the first place, right? Have you been born again, born from above, right? Have you been regenerated by the power of the Spirit of God in your life? Because here's the thing, there's a danger in the, the, the lack of the gospel in decisions that, that have been made and, and people that are standing on something that is not secure. Because here's the truth, see the call of the gospel. Somebody asked me in the same conversation, they said that someone had asked them that, okay, so if I'm in Christ, does that mean I can just live however way I want to do? Not if you know my Jesus, right? The scripture says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid, how in the world could we who have been born again and experienced the grace of God continue to live in sin? We, it, it's not there. He says, listen, we've got to understand Salvation is a call to believe the gospel. The gospel consists of the holiness of God, right? We know who our God is, that he is holy and that he is righteous. And that because of, of his holiness and his righteousness, that sin can't enter into his presence. And we know that our righteousness is as filthy rags, that we are sinners, that we are in the consequences of our sin is, is a just punishment that is deserved, right? Separation from God eternally in a place called hell. But the reality is that, that if we... Are, are reconciled to God to know and follow Christ to respond to the good news of the gospel in repentance and faith in surrender to God that's what we do and we are reconciled to God and it's not simply a moment of decision but it is a life of following Jesus that's what the scripture teaches Jesus said if anyone would come after me then um, if you'll just bow your head and close your eyes nobody's looking around if, if anybody wants to come after me just repeat this and everything will be okay and you'll be in heaven. Just live however you want to. doesn't matter because you're once saved, always saved. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It is a call to surrender. It is a call to discipleship. It is a call to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. It is a call to surrender everything that you have. And it's only done low, right? We see him come to the lowly shepherds. We see him skip all the people in all the high places because that's the way that we come to Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? That recognize that we don't bring anything to the table. That there's like God's not looking and going, man, I hope I can get him on the team because he'll be like, he shot the goal in the wrong basket. I don't even need him, right? That's what, that's the reality, right? That's not, God is looking and he says in his great love and in his great mercy, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those that recognize that it is, they're in desperate need of the grace of God in their life. Blessed are those that mourn, right? That, that recognize that and are convicted by the Holy Spirit and mourn over that, that are repentant, that are broken because of their sin, right? This is the call to the gospel, not simply a moment of decision, but a life of following Jesus. It is the message of salvation. It is the message of the gospel and peace. 
peace is available to all men, all men that will surrender all to follow him. That is the call to follow Jesus, to surrender everything, to give up everything. But I want you to understand that when we give up everything, the scripture says that we have an inheritance, right? That all that is, we give up our little pennies for all the glories of heaven. The Bible says that we're joint heirs with Jesus, that we, that, that we have an inheritance, right? That's kept in heaven, that is reserved. That's what we have as followers of Jesus Christ. We feel like we're giving up everything, but we're giving up nothing. We're surrendering nothing, right? For everything in the gospel. That's the gospel. That is it, right? That we, that we receive the riches of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 is the most, maybe the most beautiful picture of reconciliation and the work of God in our life, right? The scripture says that, that, that if anyone is in Christ, that he's a new creature, that all things pass away and all things become new. And then that scripture goes on to say that we've been made ambassadors for Christ and that we're given this ministry of reconciliation, that we go out into all the world and we proclaim the good news of the gospel. That's what we do as followers of Jesus Christ. We are saved and then we're sent on mission for the glory of his name. Man, it's the crazy picture of the shepherds who were unclean and would be looked at and not even be able to be used as witnesses to testify in a court of law that Jesus chooses to reveal his birth to, that God chooses to reveal his birth to, and then are sent out to be the first ones to testify of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the way our God works. That's the gospel. It's for everyone. It's for the lowly. It is for the poor. It is for us all. And the reality is that we respond in faith to the good news of the gospel, and we are born again the scripture says, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, that we could be saved. And that whoever would call upon the name of the Lord, that we would be saved. It is that response to the message of the gospel that, that, that causes us to be born again into a living hope. And unless we're born again, right, we have no hope. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship um, I, I want to ask you just a couple questions as we, uh, as we just come to this time in the service. Uh, first of all, have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Has there ever been a time, uh, I, I, instead of asking the question, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Uh, the, the, the reality is that once saved, forever following Jesus. That's the picture of the gospel. And the, and the question is, right, that, that endurance is the, the evidence of our salvation. And the question this morning, have you ever responded to the gospel and surrender? Have you ever simply surrendered everything to him? And if you haven't, you have an opportunity today to respond to the good news of Christ, to turn from your sin and surrender to him. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I know that I'm a follower of Christ and there's been moments that I've been straying off the path and I see how God is continuing to bring things into my life and to allow things to come into my life, to draw me back and to pull me and, and to conform me to his image. And I surrender this morning. See, the, the, the response to the Lord is always surrender. No matter where we're at, right? It may be for the first time today that some of you need to kneel in this altar and, and surrender everything to Jesus, to, to trust him for salvation, to pray. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with the words of a prayer, to confess your sin to him and, and to surrender your life. But the real purpose, right? And the real beautiful thing, right, is in the, the, the posture that we are in, right? The, the condition of our heart. And only God knows the heart. So today I pray that you will respond in obedience. Father, I pray God, for every voice, God, every, every person, God, that is uh, and under the sound of my voice, Lord, those that are watching on 
streams online, Lord, those that are in this room. Lord, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit, God, might speak to our hearts, Lord, that you might convict. God, that you might convince, Lord, that you might allow, Lord, the truth of our condition, right? God, your word tells us to examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians, God, 7. To examine ourselves as to whether we be in the faith. So I pray, God, in these moments, Lord, that there would be an examination going on in this room. God, that it would reveal, Lord, that you would reveal and convict hearts, Lord. If there's someone that needs to surrender today, God, that they would respond in obedience. God, have your will and way in our lives, Lord. And may you allow us, Lord, to experience peace today. God, because of the present posture of our heart, God, as every knee, God, bows, every tongue confesses, Lord, that you are Lord. Lord, as we respond to your greatness. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives. The work that you're going to continue to do. Lord, I'm thankful that I am saved. God, that I was saved. And Lord, that I'm being saved. Lord, I'm thankful that every sin, past, present, and future was paid for on your cross. Lord, that positionally, when we surrender our life to you, Lord, that we are made right with you. That you look upon us, Lord, and you see holiness. You see Jesus. And Lord, then practically for the rest of our life, you conform us to your image and you work in our life. Lord, thank you for your continued work. May we press on to the glory of your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand? If you have a need today, come. We'd love to pray with you. If you've never trusted Jesus or you just want to nail that down, don't walk out of here without peace today.